0: Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to see all of those friendly faces back from vacations and trips all over the place this summer. Uh, Again, we want to especially welcome anyone who's new today. Uh, We have a new school year starting uh, almost at every level. And so if you're here for the first time, uh, we just want to thank you for being here. And we hope that you find our time together uplifting, uh, that you you take some time to, to let us get to know you. We have Bible classes immediately following this worship service, and we'd love for you to consider being a part of one of those. Would you pray with me? God, as we gather together as your people, we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. We thank you for what you ask us to be a part of. We thank you for your love. We thank you for who you are and who you ask us to be. And so, God, as we gather together in this moment around your word, as we seek your face, as we try our hardest to share your heart, we ask that you would answer our prayer. That we would not only know about Jesus, but but to be people who are shaped by the story of Jesus, by the presence of Jesus in our lives. So, God, use us. Bless us so that we can be a blessing to others and help us to see what you want us to see. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. So when I got baptized on a chilly Wednesday night in 1991, I felt like as I came up out of that water that that was going to be the pinnacle of my spiritual journey. In fact, I guess if, I, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't really have a sense of a spiritual journey as much as I had a sense that there were certain spiritual achievements that I needed to reach and once I reached them, there would be no looking back. And in fact, I remember feeling so certain that those moments right after my baptism that that was going to be the, the height of my spiritual life that on the way home in the family minivan with my hair still damp from that baptistry i asked for god to send jesus back right then because i had a sense that if this was as good as it was going to get in terms of my spiritual status that that i needed for the time to be short Right? I, I needed for, for Jesus to come back before my sisters had time to cause me to sin. And often that would take place in the minivan immediately after church. And so I just sat in the back seat with my eyes closed, trying to ignore everybody in the van who was annoying me. And, and I asked for Jesus to come back. 25 years later... It's obvious that Jesus didn't respond to my originally preferred timeline. Uh, I I wanted it. I wanted to be able for Jesus to come back and for me to face God on his throne without a single sin on my post-baptismal spiritual scorecard. But time passed. And as I had suspected... When it came to moral perfection, time was not my friend. Time was my enemy. I didn't have, as I look back, I was 12 years old, I just, I knew there were certain things, I knew there was kind of this checklist, and I wanted to, to check things off in order, and, and as fast but as responsibly as I could, but I would never have used the word or the idea of journey. I didn't see my baptism as... A starting place I saw it as as the ending point that basically beyond that I was going to be trying to hit pause on my spiritual life on my moral life that I was going to try to assume a holding pattern waiting for that moment when I would hear the trumpet sound and I would know that I had made it and I was terrified at the thought that in the meantime, I might accidentally do something that would cause me to not be saved and not realize it. I I was terrified that I would somehow commit the unforgivable sin. And I remember asking my dad, who was a preacher, what is the unforgivable sin? And his helpful response was, we're not really sure. We don't exactly know what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, just don't do it. Okay, and then if, if he said that, I just kept thinking about, okay, well, well I, what if there's some other type of unforgivable sin that I'm not aware of that I am committing? I hope it doesn't have anything to do with my relationships with my sisters, but what, what, what am I going to do in my relationship to God in the meantime? And here's what I found. I wasn't really trying to go forward. I was trying to go back to that Wednesday night. In 1991, in the baptistry, next to my father, I wasn't trying to make progress. I was trying to not make a mistake. Because I was afraid. I don't know why, but, but when I got baptized, the reason I got baptized was I had a recurring nightmare where God peeled back the roof on my bedroom and pointed at his eternal watch and said, time's up, and it's too late. Now that is not the coziest Reason to get baptized, to, to start a relationship with God. I was just trying to make sure that I, I did what I needed to do to have this status of being saved. And if you had asked me to define what it meant to be saved, I would have said to you, it means that I get to go to heaven when I die. And I don't want to do anything in my life that jeopardizes what happens after I die. And so I... I kept a record of wrongs against myself. I mean time I would, would slip up and I would notice that I slipped up, I would say a prayer of rededication, of trying to follow Jesus perfectly again. over and over again, I would pray these nervous prayers, of rededication. And something you start to lose something in a loving relationship when you have to keep trying to start the relationship over. But that's where I was. And then I, I came to ACU, and I was a Bible major, and I started studying uh, what, what, what is the Bible actually trying to describe to us when it comes to being saved, right? And, and while there are certainly places in Scripture where we would say that being saved means getting to go to heaven when we die, there's other places in Scripture that talk about Being saved as not just a destination at the end of life, but a kind of experience during this life. Right, That eternal life, especially in John's Gospel and John's letters, it's not just the length of life, it's a quality of life. It starts now and it never comes to an end. And it's not a life that is hallmarked by fear and threat and intimidation. It is a life of unconditional love and unending grace and, and a sense that God believes in you more than you're able to believe in yourself. And out of that confidence, not out of fear, but out of that confidence, we are then set free to live a life of gratitude and trust and hope. I mean, when you, you look at, at the Bible, being saved is, is the ongoing journey of growing closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And, and through that growing closer, we, we have this sense that we're being transformed every single day into someone who looks like Jesus. Now, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul talks about this. He kind of touches on this idea when he says, The righteousness that I have comes from not being morally perfect. He says, it comes from knowing Christ. It comes from a relationship with Christ. The power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, it includes being conformed to his death so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead. It's not that I have already reached the goal or have already been perfected, but I pursue it so that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me for just this purpose. Paul's not talking about being saved in this, this passage is just a spiritual status. Paul's talking about it as a journey of knowing Christ, of participating in the life of Christ. And somehow in this, this participation that the Holy Spirit makes possible, we become not just friends of Christ, but we become more and more like Christ. Faith is a journey. It's, it's a journey that keeps growing our relationship with God. And it's that relationship, it's that experience of that relationship that is saving us. That is helping us understand what it, it means to be saved every single day. Now, now back when I, I thought that faith was, was claiming moral perfection and then doing my very best to preserve it, Back when I wished I could kind of hit that pause button on my moral life until Jesus came back, I thought about spiritual disciplines like praying and fasting and daily Bible reading as a kind of, sort of, eternal extra credit. You you didn't have to to do them because they, on on their own, they couldn't make you any more or less saved. That's what baptism was for. I had done that. I didn't want to mess that up, but... Praying and fasting and daily Bible reading were kind of like eating your peas and carrots. You probably didn't want to do that, but it's a generally good idea to do that. More than that, I had this sense that they made God happy. They didn't make me any more saved, but they did make God happy. And I wanted to make God happy because I wanted for, for God to let me go to heaven when I died. So what I found was I went in this, I, this is probably not a confession you want your preacher to make, but I, I found myself in this place where, well let's just say it this way, I only do extra credit if it's going to make a difference between an A and a B, right, in my whole life, I don't do, I don't do extra credit all the time, I only do it if it's going to make a measurable difference in my grade. So what I would find is, based on my uh, absolute, perfectly accurate sense of myself, I would go through times where I'd think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm not hitting my sisters as often. I'm not lying as often. I'm not, I'm not making any of those mistakes. And so in those, tr- those times, those, those track record moments of, I'm doing pretty good, The first thing I'd do is look at everybody else and compare my track record to theirs. I was always a little ahead of my sister's, again, in my perfect understanding of who I was and who they were. But then I'd reach a place other times where I'd have a lot of mistakes and stumbles catching, catching up with me. And I'd start, you know, it'd be a sermon, or would be during Bible class, or it'd be during a youth rally or something, and I'd feel bad about myself, and I'd start using words like wretch, and you know, all those things that you feel when you're singing Amazing Grace, and you feel like you could have written it. And so then I would, I would think, goodness, I, I hope Judgment Day is not tomorrow, I need a little bit of time here to make God happy again. So now I'm going to start fasting and praying and reading my Bible every single day. And maybe if I do that enough and there's enough lag time between me messing up and Jesus coming back and, and God got up on the right side of the bed that day, he's going to look at my track record of extra credit and he's going to say, well, you're not, you're not perfect. You're not, you're not even as good as I want you to be. But you did try really hard over here in, in this extra credit column, so I guess I'll let you in. But The more I've experienced the truth in my life, that faith really is a journey, that that our relationship with God is not uh, a disappointed judge or teacher who's looking at a track record and then making some sort of dispassionate decision about where we're going to spend all of eternity, the more I've had a sense that what being saved feels like is knowing Christ— and becoming more and more like Christ, I have found that that spiritual disciplines are not just some nice thing you do that 's kind of a decent idea every once in a while to prove to God that you 're trying. Now spiritual disciplines are a really important way that you and I we can open up ourselves open ourselves up to to letting God do whatever it is God wants to do in us and with us and through us. I I no longer see spiritual disciplines as eternal extra credit. I see them as essential. And there is a crucial difference there. I should say also that I don't see them as a spiritual self-help program that's mostly about me feeling better about me we're talking about prayer this morning I want to be real clear about this you don't want to enter into prayer to prove that you're really good at praying so that you feel better about yourself because of how good you are or or you think you are at praying you pray in order to know Christ better you fast in order to know Christ better you slow down in order to know Christ better You do all 12 of these spiritual disciplines that we're going to be exploring together. You do that to know Christ better, to to be known by Christ, to, to know others the way Christ knows them. We do this interior work not for ourselves alone. We do this interior work for everyone out there, for everyone else. And it's really important because one of the things that gets mentioned in Scripture over and over again is that if you and I try to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's not the right thing anymore. We want to do the right thing for the right reasons from the right places in our hearts. We enter into opening ourselves up to God for the sake of the world. For the sake of people who don't know Christ yet. And if we start from any other place, I'm afraid what's going to happen is Maybe it's not so much we view spiritual disciplines as extra credit. We view it as a way to judge other people. To see them as those who don't try as hard as we do or aren't you know, at a place where, where we think they should be at this stage in their spiritual life. It does us no good to become people like that. That's not what knowing Christ looks like. So what, what does it mean to be people who seek to know Christ better for the sake of others. I, I think the thing that, that we have to keep coming back to is not only are these spiritual disciplines essential, but they're also not going to be easy. It's going to take work. It's going to take determination and perseverance because there's going to there's be times when some of these practices come easy to you and there are going to be many times where they don't. In fact, there's going to be times when some of these practices, the very same practice, Seems like it's as is, is natural to you as breathing one day, and the next day you find that you're just not connecting. And, and brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you is the way we become disciples is through self-discipline. The way we become disciples is, is through making the decision that when something is difficult, we're going to try anyway. And we're going to trust that when we try, God blesses that effort and is able to do something in us and with us and through us that would never happen if we weren't willing to try. So for the next few months, we're going to be journeying together through 12 different practices that I am convinced, if, if we will try them out, we're going to find... Maybe not just one, maybe a handful that really work for us, that really work for you, that help you understand better who God is calling you to be. And I want to encourage you to take seriously where you are in your life, what's going on in your heart, the kinds of fears and hopes and dreams that are driving you. Name those, those motivations and those thoughts and those, those hopes and dreams and ask yourself, do, do they help bring in the will of God? Do they help bring in the kingdom of God, not just for you, but for other people in your life? So hopefully you've noticed by now there's some booklets on the ends of the pews. If you're on the end of the pew and you have a stack, uh, the booklets look like, like this. Please pass them down the row. We, we tried to make sure we covered the room with enough. Uh, if you run out on your row, reach to the row in front of you or behind you. Don't do that without warning, I should say. And... Uh, and go ahead and try to get a, a notebooklet right now. I want to walk through carefully kind of our intent with these. Our hope is that each sermon in this series is gonna function as a brief introduction to a different spiritual practice. Now you may feel like you're an expert in all kinds of spiritual practices. You you may feel like you're a novice at many. I find myself somewhere in the middle, where I've, I've tried many before, but there's always new practices that I'm learning about and hearing about. So every week, we're going to make these, these small notebooklets note available. And what you'll find uh, inside is a space for a definition of that day's practice. And I, I will, don't worry, in a few minutes here, I'll give you the definition of what praying is. And you need to know, there's all kinds of definitions for these practices for better or for worse, we're going to go with my current definitions of these practices. You can correct them after you write them down, right? So, And then you'll also find, and we're going to come back to this at the end of the sermon, you're going to find practical ways to try this practice out this week. Um, kick the tires, just, just try it out. Um, and I really want you to think about it that way. I, I think one of the things we do to ourselves with... With spiritual practices, we try to be a master our first time, and we get intimidated. We're just trying these out, and we're going to see through experiments, prayer experiments, and fasting experiments, and all the rest, what form of that practice really connects with your heart and connects you to God's heart. Um, so, uh, there's a little space for you to write other notes. You know, you might write something, whatever you want, um, Reese already took one and wrote a big heart over here for Miss Brandon and her kindergarten teacher and told me to get it to her. So my daughter Reese has already wasted one of these, but I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Way to go, Reese. So what we're hoping is at the end of this series, you're going to have a little booklet. Uh, notes that you've taken and a basic definition of all these different practices and maybe a couple years from now when we're past this series and you want to re-engage something, you've got the, the resources in your hand to do that. So, uh, I, I hope you take those in the spirit they're given. Open your Bibles up to 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 9. So we're going to talk about Prayer with the time that we have left. And I want us to talk about prayer out of the story of Elijah, the prophet, who has been on a long journey trying to get to the mountain of the Lord because he is desperate, he is scared, he feels alone, he's just humiliated. Uh, The king and queen of Israel and they are hunting him down. And he goes to the only place he knows to go to encounter God. He goes to that same mountain that Moses was on when God and Moses spoke to one another face-to-face the way you would speak to a friend. And so those are his expectations. He wants to encounter God. But my guess is Elijah wants to encounter a certain certain aspect of God. He wants to encounter a certain version of God. But let's read what happens in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse nine. There he went into a cave on the mountain of the Lord and spent the night. The Lord's word came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they want to take my life too. The Lord said, Go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. Now, Elijah's heart has to be quickened at that because that's exactly what he came for. This is exactly what Moses got to experience on this same mountain generations before. The Lord's going to pass by. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance. Now, why would he wrap his face in his coat? Because he remembers the story of Moses. And what happens when you encounter the glory of God when God passes by? It's almost too much for you to bear, and your face starts, starts to, to glow. A voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? Why are you here? I I have always loved this story, and I have always loved to imagine what it must have been like. The the Bible tells us that Elijah has, has been journeying for 40 days and 40 nights. He goes to this very same mountain that Moses has been on and encountered the glory and the presence of the Lord, and that's what he's seeking. And when he starts to hear that wind tear through the valley and across the mountain and start to tear things apart, don't you think that Elijah thought, yes, this is just the kind of powerful God I need right now on my side? This is, this is the kind of God I want. And then there's an earthquake that starts to, to shake the very foundations of the earth. And don't you think Elijah had to think, Yes, this is exactly the kind of threatening God I need to protect me from my enemies. The, the king and queen of Israel are sending warriors to find me and kill me. This is what I need. And then there's this wildfire that rages and races all over the place. And, and don't you think Elijah had to think, Yes, this is the kind of consuming God I need to keep me safe. The wind and the earthquake and the fire, these are all aspects of the glory of God that Elijah wants. And then it says there's this this sound, thin and quiet. Some translations say a soft whisper. Other translations say it was the sound of sheer silence. However we want to translate it, what we know is after the wind and the earthquake and the fire, there is something present. That Elijah has to strain to hear. That Elijah has to work at to understand. And he does understand it because it's then that he wraps his face in his coat and he comes out to encounter God. And I have to believe that there's a little part of Elijah that's disappointed. Because Elijah ran 40 days a night to get to the mountain of the Lord for the God of the wind and the earthquake and the fire, not the God of the soft whisper. And then in that soft whisper, God asks Elijah a centrally important question when it comes to any time you and I run to the mountain of the Lord in our lives. And the question is, why are you here? What are you doing here? What are you hoping for here? What are you expecting here? Why, Elijah, why are you here? I I want you to think about, in your own life, how you would answer that question. Why, Why are we here when we start to pray? When we start to talk to God when we start speaking. Are we saying a rote prayer because we know that's what's expected of Christian people when they come to church or when they sit down at a meal or when they get ready to go to sleep? Are we desperately begging for a way out of a situation that we just can't seem to, to find a way out of? Are we angry at how little God seems to be doing for somebody else in our life who we have prayed for over and over and over again? Are we thanking God for something incredible that God has done on our behalf and we're filled with gratitude and hope and trust? Are we asking God God, begging God to forgive us for something we've done that we know we should have never done? Why are we here when we pray? There are, I suppose, as many different reasons to pray as there are situations in life that we find ourselves in. But there is one unifying reason, I think, that, that connects every other possible reason we have when we start to say a prayer to God. We pray because praying is seeking a personal encounter with the God who alone can help us handle everything we have to face. So in your little notebooklet there's a space for this definition. Praying is seeking a personal encounter with the God who alone can help us handle everything we have to face. We we pray because we believe that even when we feel alone, we aren't alone. We pray because even when there's no one else around, we believe that God is the ground of our life. That God is with us wherever we are, whatever we've done. We pray because we want to open ourselves up to the God who created us once, and we believe who sustains us every moment of every day. What are we doing when we pray? We are we're, we're inviting God in. Here's the reality about God. God has the power, the ability to be everywhere. But God always wants an invitation to be within you, to be in your life. God will shape your life from the outside in all kinds of countless ways, but for us to be transformed into the image of Christ, we have to be willing participants. We have to be collaborators with God. We have to be working with God for that to take place. We invite God in when we pray. We're we're trying to breathe in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit like a kind of sacred oxygen for our souls. We're asking God to help us sense his nearness, his presence, not only in our hearts but in our lives. Out there in the real world where things are so broken that we can't possibly fix it on our own. And we know that every time we pray, brothers and sisters, we are confessing our own limitations and handling everything that we have to face. God is our only hope. And so we pray. Now, here's one of the the push and pull struggles of spiritual disciplines when it comes to prayer. The question is, does prayer change you or your situation? Yes. Yes. So we are confessing that we have nowhere better, we have nowhere left to turn. Even if we think we can... Can pull it off on our own. We, we believe that, that that's not possible, and so we pray. We talk to God. Now, here's the challenge of the story of Elijah on the mountain of the Lord. As much as you and I think we need, and as much as we think we'd love to have a God who would always answer our prayers in wildly dramatic fashion, right? We want tornadoes and earthquakes and fires, and we want those things to be aimable, As much as we think we need that, as much as we think we would love that kind of God, the God we actually have, the God we actually need, is a God who most often reveals his loving, caring, gentle presence in our lives through the sound of a whisper. That's the God we have. A God who shows up and, and speaks to us in quiet ways that we have to, we have to work we have to we have to struggle at times to see and hear and encounter we have to focus carefully if we're going to experience God at all it's true for Elijah and I believe that it's true for us as well now here's the other struggle when it comes to prayer, even though the, the, the uniting drive behind our our prayers or is is this kind of soul-deep desire to have a personal encounter with God where we talk to God, a good, healthy prayer life doesn't only involve talking to God. It, It doesn't only involve talking at God. Prayer is not a presentation to get what you want. It's a conversation. And conversations, in my experience, always have give and take. There's, there's a space where I'm speaking, but then there's always a space where I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to let the other person say whatever it is they're going to say. If the primary place you have learned how to pray is by listening to the kinds of prayers we say and worship on Sunday morning, you have never probably seen somebody model often the space to listen when they pray. In fact, usually when we have space in prayers in church, we're asking you to talk silently in your mind about something. We are so used to, to turning prayer into a presentation instead of a conversation that we don't really leave any space for God to actually lead us and guide us in the quietness of our own hearts, in the wake of our own words. This is difficult because one-way conversations are usually agenda-driven. A couple of weeks ago, our, our daughter Reese, who's about to start kindergarten tomorrow and I probably made Lauren just tear up, uh, She's talking to her older sister, who is pure in heart and lets Reese get away with all kinds of things without understanding it's happening. I'm sitting in the room with them, and Reese is laying it on thick to Riley about what an incredible big sister she is. And Riley's in the middle of eating candy, so I know where this is going. (laughs) And I say to Reese, Are you working an angle? And she said, What does that mean? I said, you're just being nice to Riley to get her to do what you want her to do. And she goes, Yep, I'm working an angle. <laughs> Sometimes I'm worried that when we're praying we're working an angle. That's not a conversation. And so we have to we have to make the difficult decision to to learn how to be quiet when we pray. To be quiet in God's presence. We have to learn how to wait on God's response. Isn't it interesting that Elijah's prayer is save me, protect me? And he might have misinterpreted God's response to that prayer if he had gone too quickly with the the fire or the earthquake or the wind. He has to wait long enough to realize that God's answer to protecting him and saving him and helping him is through the sound of a soft whisper through the partnership of God saying, you you may feel alone, but you're not alone. And you may feel like you're vulnerable and no one's going to protect you, but I'm here with you. But you've got to quiet the raging in your heart long enough to hear that still small voice. It takes time. It takes work. It takes concentration. We live in a world right now where almost the worst thing that could happen is to be bored. That we need constant entertainment and constant information and And the second that it gets quiet, we start to tap our feet and we start to feel like something's wrong. And something is wrong because we're scared because we've been running from the quiet. And and we know that when it gets quiet, we're going to think thoughts and we're going to have regrets and we're going to have hopes and we're going to have all kinds of things that come to the surface of our heart in that silence that we would rather not deal with. And yet, what if God's trying to say something really vital and important to us about those struggles, about those, those thoughts that we're running from? Christian author Henry Nouwen says it this way, prayerful listening begins with a time and a place for God and God alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that God is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, we need to set aside a time and space to give God our undivided attention. This kind of listening prayer is a way of life that allows you to open your hands to God's promises and find hope for yourself, your neighbor, and your world. You will encounter God not only in the small voice and the soft breeze, but also in the midst of the world and in your own heart. Faith isn't just a set of ideas we believe, it's a journey. And being saved isn't just our spiritual status, brothers and sisters. Being saved is what it feels like to live in the gracious, unending presence of a God who loves you more than you know how to love yourself. Spiritual practices are not eternal extra credit. They're essential. And praying isn't just about getting God to do exactly what we tell God to do. Praying is about a personal encounter with God where we not only confess our own limitations through our words, but we listen and we watch and we wait in trust and in hope that God always does what is best. Even if it's hard to understand, even if it's hard at times for us to see and hear, we trust that we have a good, good father who cares for us and always gives us not what we want, but what we need. The one answer to prayer that you and I need more than any other answer to prayer is not for God to do something for us, but for God to do something in us and with us and through us. The answer to prayer you and I need is not, is not really God's activity. It's God's presence. And do we really believe that? Or are we left wanting more? Now, if you'll look at the, the notebooklet one last time, you'll notice that there are five prayer experiments that are intended to help you This week, take this sermon a little further. Try saying a prayer in which you speak for the first five minutes and you listen for the last five minutes. If you've never been quiet for five straight minutes in the presence of God, you're going to find how difficult that can be. It sounds easy. It's difficult. Try saying a prayer without asking for anything. Instead, focus on giving thanks. I've done that in my life. I only do it when I set out to do it. I never do it on accident. Try saying a prayer in which your only request is for a sense of God's nearness, God's presence. That's what you ask God to do is to help you sense how close God is to you. Try saying a prayer in a different physical posture than you usually assume when you pray. Did you know there's not a single text where people sit comfortably while they pray in the Bible? It talks about them standing with their hands raised. It talks about them laying flat on the ground in the presence of the king of the universe. It talks about posture when people pray. I don't remember them sitting on padded chairs. Maybe the physical posture change would do something. I know it has in my life from time to time. Try saying a prayer in the car by turning off the radio using that super long Abilene commute. Isn't that a great thing about Abilene? Even if it's five minutes, right, use that time to pray. Pray for the people around you that are irritating you. Pray for the the people in your life that you know need help. Pray. Pray. Pray for God to help you. So these are just five ways we want to ask you to consider. Try one. Try all five this week. We don't want this to just be a lesson that happens and then it's over and then we move on. On the back, you see that we have a reference to livingthesermon.com. That's a weekly blog that our discipleship minister, Keith Clark, maintains. It's going to have ways you can go even deeper with these prayer practices and and trying to experiment with prayer in different ways. There'll be videos. There's a Spotify playlist so that you can listen to music all week that's centered on prayer. We're trying to help you in every way possible. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about short-term practice small groups that we're just going to call open groups where for a month's time, you in a small community can try different aspects of these practices out to see what God does with it. Prayer is not about us working an agenda. It's about us being open to God's kingdom agenda. And I hope this week that you're able to create that space in your life for God. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, our shepherds and their wives are going to be in various places throughout this room, standing, ready to receive you. If you came this morning curious about our church, about what it means to become a Christian, uh, if you came with a burden or a struggle that you'd like to pray with another Christian couple about, uh, please go to these couples. I'm going to ask them to stand real quickly just so you can see where they are throughout the room. Uh, Go to them. They want to receive you. As Together we stand and sing.